2: This archival episode of Design Matters originally came
3: out in December of 2021. I sang using my voice as an instrument. The early, you know, the early stuff, "Murmur," particularly. It's it's like um, Sigur Ross or This Mortal Coil, um, Elizabeth Fraser, people that are creating languages or or just singing nonsense without narrative. The, the narrative is within the emotion and the feeling of the voice. <music>
2: From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 17 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Michael Stipe talks about his life in music and photography.
3: I've had this extraordinary life surrounded by and meeting incredible, incredible people.
0: When Michael Stipe was the lead singer and lyricist for the band REM, talents and interests beyond music, he was deeply involved in crafting the album covers and other aspects of the band's visual identity. In 1998, he published his first photo book, and in recent years, he's published books of photography. His latest is an untitled book of portraits and still lives, the making of which was complicated in interesting ways by COVID. He joins me now to talk about his practice of photography and about the musician and an artist. Michael Stipe, welcome
3: to Design Matters. Thank you, Debbie. How's it going? It's so nice to see you. So nice
0: to see you too. Michael, I understand that the best kiss of your life
3: was with Allen Ginsberg. Well, that was that was a questionnaire for uh, Guardian or independent, the independent.
0: It was for a UK paper for
3: sure, one of the UK papers. And you know they think that Americans have no sense of humor or sense of irony, so I, I work extra hard to create ridiculous responses to their questions.
0: Oh, so it wasn't really true.
3: It was a very memorable kiss, Alan's kiss. Yes, we were uh, working together. We worked several years with Tibet House out of New York City. There was a yearly benefit, an annual benefit to support Tibet House, and I got involved through Patti Smith and through Philip Glass, and Alan was always there. Alan was standing side of stage when I was introduced as the magnificently talented and irresistible Michael Stipe, and I got up and I did my thing, a couple songs, walked off stage, into the arms of Alan Ginsberg, who grabbed me by the shoulders, planted a kiss, and said, irresistible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the guy was the guy was this, you know, massive hero of mine uh, from the age of 17. And here he is kissing me on the mouth and calling me irresistible. It was it was quite.
0: That actually sounds really yummy. (laughs) If you want want me to be honest, I think that sounds really yummy. Michael, you were born in Georgia. And that is also where your grandparents are from. Traveled a great deal while you were growing up. Your dad was in the army. Where were some of the other places that you lived?
3: It seems like I have this very particular memory that's super specific to the time that we spent in Germany outside of Frankfurt uh, in a place called Hanau. Hanau is where during World War II, they Frankfurt to turn off their lights and they told everyone in Hanau to turn on their lights. So Hanau was bombed to shut and then it became an army base after the war. That's where my father was stationed in 1966 and 67, I believe. I spent the summer of love there, I, rem- I remember. But I have the distinct almost hour by hour memories of that time. I'm speaking to you actually from Athens, Georgia, which is where my family live and where my former band was based. I kept a home here that I bought when I was 25. I am back for holidays and to visit family, but I wound up spending actually a huge part of the pandemic here. Uh, Why am I talking about that? You mentioned my grandparents. Well, interestingly, they're not all from Georgia. My grandmother was born on a residence in North Carolina called Black Mountain, and she was actually born on Black Mountain. My grandfather is from South Carolina. My maternal grandmother is from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and my pappy, who is my maternal grandmother, was actually born in Alabama, I think. But they all settled, for one reason or another, into Georgia, and that's where, when my parents met each other, that's where they were, here in Georgia.
0: You mentioned some of your memories. I read about a unique memory that you have of your childhood, one when you were four years old, and upon looking at a light bulb, you decided you wanted to become the filament. Um, the only way you mm-hmm. was to bite into the light bulb which you did. And your father and uncle found you trying to eat the bulb and ultimately tried to pull the pieces out of your mouth and then try to put the light bulb back blue to make sure you hadn't swallowed it. Um, I thought that was a really unique memory and, and sort of the beginnings of a baby artist right there.
3: Wow, that's beautiful. Thank you. I can actually move back a a couple of years. I think I was four when that happened. I distinctly remember them being horrified at become the filament. And what's interesting (laughs) to me as as an adult, what's interesting is that I really meant it. I wanted to be the thing that lights up. Uh, And I didn't understand that, of course, um, I'm made of very different materials than the filament of a well, uh, and that, that, that wasn't going to happen, at least uh, on, on this particular plane of existence. But I did try. Uh, a few years before that, and again, my mother and I were talking about this the other day, because she said, honey, you were so, so, so sick. I got pneumonia and strep throat, and then it turned to scarlet fever. And that was my, the second memory uh, that I had, my first memory being my sister's birth when I was two years old. And then Two months later, right before my third birthday, I had this terrible... You know, William Burroughs told Patti Smith that they were both members of the Scarlet Fever Club. It boils your brain. It makes your synapses um, connect in a different way, according to William. And, you know, maybe we're exaggerating a bit. I hope so. But if if I can exaggerate my my second memory in life, I would hope that it would be William Burroughs. (laughs) Um, I, I had Scarlet Fever, and so... Um, maybe the idea that I could at four years old, uh, turn myself into the filament, uh, was not so outrageous.
0: Was it at that moment that you felt it was important that you actually light up a room?
3: I was called, uh, Mike Stipe, the shining light when my name was Mike. That's, that was my nickname in kindergarten and in first grade. Uh, now that many, so again, I remember, virtually uh, every day of it and and I, I was learning I was I was a slow learner in many regards so I was learning how to read and write then uh, I was left-handed my mother made the decision that um, with you are too decision that uh, that they would not try to change me to suit the the, the idea of that all people should be right-handed and so she allowed me to be left-handed but um I, I wasn't learning at the same rate as other kids I was in third grade And it was this abstract concept, the round thing with the arms. I I couldn't connect that to the passage of time.
0: Yeah, it wasn't until years later that there were digital clocks that... When people rely on digital clocks, because I think there is something kind of wonderful about the idea of reading time as if that's something that could be ever static.
3: One of my first first sculpture pieces, uh, going back to, I guess it was 2006 or 2007, uh, is a, um, an exact replica of my first digital uh, alarm clock, which which also played music. So it was this combination of kind of the future, uh, along with uh, uh, being able to listen to the radio, two things that, that for me are profoundly important. Uh, my dreamscape pretty much is a post-apocalyptic future that's got a lot of water. No Kevin Costner, but a lot of water. <laughs> but it's not terrifying. Everything's held together by scotch tape and staples but it's not a it's not a terrifying place it's actually quite welcoming Uh, but how did I get into that now Debbie I have to say um, I'm drinking my first cup of tea in a month I haven't had caffeine in over a month so I'm I'm going very slow with the caffeine here I don't want to get ahead of myself but you might have to remind me why we're going in different directions
0: not a problem I, I don't mind doing that at all do you keep track of your dreams do you write them down when you wake up and analyze them
3: I'd like to say yes, but I don't. No, I don't. The ones that I need to remember, I, I, I remember, uh, and, and then some of them, like last night's stream, I, I'd really rather just let go of. On paper is my schedule and pop lyrics, <laughs> everything else. And pop lyrics even kind of wind up more on the computer these days than, than on paper. Uh, I don't like my handwriting. Uh, I find it distracting and um, uh, imperfect. and write something brilliant, uh, but if it's a bad handwriting day, I'll just throw it away, or, or I'll, I'll disregard the idea. Uh, equally, and I learned this with lyric writing, pop lyric writing, I, I can write something really bad, and if it's a good handwriting day, I'll think that it's the best thing, and it, it isn't, you know?
0: <laughs> How do you come to whether or not you're having a good or bad handwriting day? What are the, what are the criteria to create
3: a handwriting day? I look at it and uh, it's either or it's mortifying, and it's more often than not mortifying.
0: So you have no control over the output?
3: No. And I don't think that has to do with being left handed. I don't know if you have a similar problem, but I do smear things a lot. So there's a lot of smearing ha- that happens. I used to write kind of sideways, upside down, but that was really painful. I think a lot of left handed people have that same experience. I also walk into doors a lot. Do you?
0: Yes. Yeah. We, you know, it's very funny. Terry Teach out the. Um for the Wall Street Journal, and also a playwright and dramaturg, once told me that um, he falls a lot. He's also left-handed, and he said that he's been told that left-handed people see the world backwards, and and that's why I spatial issues. I have a lot of spatial issues, so yeah, I, I trip and fall and bang into things all the time.
3: Yeah, me too. Me too. I'm really bad that way.
0: Are you able to write mirror backwards? A lot of left-handed people can do that without even realizing they can do it.
3: Until I was in the seventh grade, uh, and then I had a teacher who pulled me aside, and she had, got, she had got to grade my papers uh, by holding them up to a to a, to a light bulb uh, and grade the back of them. I, I wrote I wrote exact mirror image uh, until yeah, w- what is seventh grade? I was twelve years old. Yeah, but she said um, she said, and this is probably almost a direct quote. She said. It's like two fish that are going to flip-flop if you continue doing this. And I could, I could visualize that, and it terrified me, so I stopped doing it.
0: Oh, well, I bet you could still do it. I don't think it's something you can unlearn. I actually think something kind of wonderful about flipping back and forth, left brain, right brain. And it's never flip-flopped in a way that felt like a fish.
3: It's really good in meetings because I can read, when people have papers on their desk, I can read everything. Uh, Upside down and uh, Is it upside down and backwards? It looks backwards, but yeah, I'm able to read. Just mirror backwards, yeah. Like Da Vinci. Exactly. (laughs) Well, I did think, and this is really an exclusive, Debbie. I wouldn't say this to many people, but for a moment, as a young, I'm going to place myself at 11. I thought that I was the reincarnation of Leonardo da Vinci. Oh, I love that.
1: Because he had
3: really, (laughs) and he wrote mirror backwards. And I was like, okay, I've got bad hair, and I write mirror backwards. (laughs) It
0: works for me. You, you first started reading about the club, CBGBs, when you were th- in the magazine. I believe it's called Roxine. And that is also when you made your first recording. And I understand your sister had one of those old school audio tape recorders. And one day when everyone had left, you locked yourself in the den and the- turned the machine on record and screamed for 10 minutes.
3: All this is true, but it was a cream magazine ah. I can picture her bedroom and sitting on the corner on the corner of her bed with this um it's like a secretary's early cassette recorder and what I would not give to have that tape today <laughs> I would re- that was my next question <laughs> I would put a I'd put a disco backbeat on it and it would be in my mind anyway the greatest hit single of all time yeah that was my first recording but I was 15 uh, in detention and this was in a different place this was now we were now in Colin of East St. Louis. I was in detention in high school and I found under my desk a Cream magazine with an article written by Lisa Robinson about the CBGB scene and how compared to of the time, it was like watching an old movie on a black and white TV with static and noise versus the kind of technicolor cinematic Music that was popular on the radio at the time, and she was drawing this obvious uh, parallel to energetic and chaotic uh, scene that was happening around groups like the Ramones, uh, Blondie, Television, uh, Patty Smith Group, uh, etc. Uh, at CBGB, and um, and comparing it to what was on the radio, which at the time was really uninteresting and boring.
0: You were originally a fan of the Archies, I believe.
3: I love the Archies, uh, and I. I I have an older sister, but she wasn't into music. My parents were not really into music that much. And so what I had was pop radio in Texas mostly. The formula listening years for me were in Texas um, up until the age of thirteen. That's when I we moved to outside of East St. Louis and I was teased mercilessly for my accent, which was had been at the time was a Georgia South Georgia accent run through and now Grandmother from North Carolina, grandfather from South Carolina, grandmother from Mississippi, grandfather from Alabama. They all grew up in in Washington, D.C., or Washington, as my grandmother would call it, and then South Georgia. Run that through Texas, through Germany. Plopped out at the age of 13 in a little kind of white flight, drug-addled town outside of East St. Louis, and I was teased mercilessly for my accent. They called me Uh, because I had really long eyelashes, faggy, but I I was more just really a nerd. They called me the Maybelline Cowboy, and it it was extremely painful. Uh, That that Uh started, uh, I wasn't really deeply bullied until those years, but that's that's when the bullying really began. I changed my accent very quickly, play school, scissors, and I chopped my eyelashes off. I tried to fit in. It didn't work. So I got a very early lesson in uh, trying to fit in recognizing that that's not working and deciding to kind of be yourself. And um, that led us on what I think is a pretty spectacular path.
0: Talk about how you accidentally got a subscription to The Village Voice.
3: Well, younger listeners would not remember this, but for a dime, you could get um, subscriptions to 12 magazines for a year if you just subscribed to some kind of thing. I don't know what it was. It was in the back of all magazines and newspapers. I mean, uh, comic books, rather and my sister she got um like red book for my mom um i don't know life magazine and all the magazines of the like early 70s late 60s boys seemed interesting to her so we got a year subscription to the village voice that introduced me to this whole other universe of course of, of new york and new york culture and that played a really heavy and important role in my punk rock at the age of 15 and recognizing that that was my tribe and that's where I was comfortable. And of course, there was no one around me who acknowledged or even knew about what was happening uh, with punk rock and with the punk rock scene. So I was really, really on my own. I mean, I had mimeographs at school that said Tom Verlaine, Tom Verlaine was the founder of the band television Tom Verlaine is God, and I I went to school early one day, and I put up these posters, these mimeograph posters, all over school. I almost because the English teacher said clearly someone is referring to the the French poet Paul Verlaine, uh, so they got that wrong. But how dare they blasphemy our Lord and Savior by referring to a French poet as God? And so there was there was this whole like. Uh, Uh, Who blasphemed the school? school. It was me, and it was Tom (laughs) Berlant from the band Television. But nobody had any idea. Anyway, uh, that was me at the age of fifteen. I was a little bit of a scamp, I guess.
0: Did anybody ever find out it was you?
3: There are other secrets uh, from that era that probably um, are not repeatable on your podcast.
0: You know, I'm thinking back to my first introduction to the Village Voice, which kind of happened around the time I, eighty. 82. When I first graduated college, I was already familiar with your work in R.E.M. But I came to Manhattan after going to school in Albany, New York, and my dad had lived in the Village uh, while I was growing up. But I didn't spend a lot of time the newspaper and thought it was sort of like a primer to the world. And at the time, I was really, really afraid of coming out. I was afraid of the judgment. You know, I was re- when I was doing a lot of my research on on your background and your I was reading about how you grappled with your thoughts about coming out back in the early 80s, and I read it out loud to Roxanne because I thought, you know, she's 14 years younger than me, and that's a big difference in the the world of coming out. This is what Michael was feeling at that time. That's exactly what I felt like. Suddenly you're going to be judged. It might affect everybody around you. You were really scared about what it would mean to your bandmates and how the, the world would treat the band. And it was such a different time I mean, that the world has changed to the degree it has, although it certainly has so much more to go. But, but reading what you were going through really helped her understand why it took me so long to come out. So thank you.
3: <laughs> You're welcome. I mean, my bandmates and everyone around me knew, uh, yeah, my of sexuality, course. you know, we lived together. They couldn't ignore or, or, or disregard, uh, who was coming uh, up into my room and, and, leaving the next morning. Yeah, it was, I mean, I, 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 I turned 20 years old in 1980 and uh, you know, what I think, I think that LGBTQIA, if I can use today's terms, uh, and apply that to the late seventies, that liberation, uh, that moment, uh, should have happened in the late 70s, following civil rights and following the women's uh, liberation movement. That that was a movement that, that was certainly not just diminished, but squashed completely by the advent of AIDS and, of course, the Reagan administration. And Reagan and Bush Sr. kind of taking over for the whole of the 1980s and into the early 90s. It took a revolution and, and shifted it years, which is, I think, why when it finally did happen, it happened so quickly, that a lot of people's heads are still spinning, trying to figure out where they are, who they are within it, Uh, not only within the straight community, but also within, as we call it, the LMNOPs. (laughs) Right. Um, Right. uh, Trying to figure out who they are and and, and where they fit in. This is something I really love about the 21st century. From the moment I I did uh, start speaking about my sexuality publicly, and for me, it was more a matter of privacy than anything else, but I, given so much of myself as a public figure and as a, as a pop star um, to the public, I wanted to keep something to myself. And of course I chose the wrong, <laughs> the wrong thing to keep. Uh, I now recognize how powerful it is to have people like ourselves in the public eye and, and that that's really, that's people who are struggling with, uh, with their own situations. But, but anyway.
0: But I also think, you know, you had already been bullied and I think once you're bullied, once you feel damaged by it's very hard to keep putting it out there because of the pain that you've already experienced and the pain you're afraid you're going to still feel.
3: Well, the people I surrounded myself with as a 20 year old were people that understood who I was and, and they had no problem with that. And in fact, they, yeah. they incur- I think they, I think it was encouraged, you know, um, that I'd be exactly who I am. The result of that is, is that we were not your typical um, pop band uh, at all. We, we were never really a rock band, uh, although we, we used some of those sounds, but, but my being a part of it just radically shifted the focus of the band completely. And, and I think those guys acknowledged and recognized, when I say those guys, Peter, Mike, and Bill, of course, the, my, band, right. my former bandmates. But then also the people around us. It, 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 was, it was clear that, that we were very, very different. And part of that, I think, really had to do with my identity and, and, and how, how that placed me in a very different um, sphere than most of what uh, normal pop culture would, would offer you
0: one of the things that i do now podcast is teach and i i teach um, undergrads seniors in at the school of visual arts and one of the things that i talk to them about is their hopes and dreams and what they want to be and what they want to do in their own. i find really tragically that they're already at 18 19 20 21 beginning to think about what they can't do as opposed to what they can. You know, they start living the possibilities of their life before they even try to make anything possible. And I was really, really struck by something that I read that you said. Um, you said that your greatest achievement has been deciding what you wanted to do at 15, and you odds doing it. And, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what gave you the sense back
3: then that it could be done. Delighted and interesting that you talk about kids today using a process of negation to try to figure out who they are and how kind of that is. My band or my former band, R.E.M., we, we used a process of negation quite regularly to, to, to figure out what we did not want to be not only as public figures, but as songwriters, the way that we dressed ourselves, the way we presented to the press, we knew all the embarrassing and fucked up tropes. So we used a process of negation to figure out how to not be those horrible idiot cliches. Uh, And I think we did a pretty good job of it over the course of 32 years. But I was 15, yeah, I mean, it was unbelievably naive of me to think that when I read these articles about the punk rock scene, As a 15 year old, I read them and and what these people were saying over and over again were that we're not special. We're talented. We're normal people. Anybody can do this. Anybody can pick up a guitar. Anybody can grab a microphone and start to sing. I took it quite literal when they said anyone can do this. I was like, okay, that's me. That's what I'm going to do. It was an insane teenage. That became an even more insane adult reality (laughs) being the singer of a band. I became the singer because I didn't know how to play an instrument. I didn't know I had a voice when I was 18 years old or 15 years old or 19 when when I started R.E.M. I had this voice. Um, I like my voice a lot. uh, And I I think I've become a very good singer with a very distinct voice. But I didn't know that at that age. I just knew that that's what I wanted to do. But then learning that you have to not only have audacity to, to... present yourself publicly but also that you have to have something behind that. There's got to be at least a modicum of talent. I didn't know you had to write songs. So I didn't know what a bass guitar was until we started our second album. I couldn't uh, identify the bass guitar sound- sounds. I didn't know that the one with four strings made all the low notes and the one with six strings made all the high notes. I mean, that's how naive I was about music. And you can hear it in that early stuff. I mean, it's quite, and they're, they're beautiful. I'm, I'm not disregarding th- those uh, recordings They are, for some people, quite magical. But I hear and I acknowledge a band and, within myself, an artist learning how to not crawl publicly, learning how to be a toddler publicly, learning how to poop his diapers, if you can carry this a little further. I finally take the training wheels off the bike, and I'm actually a songwriter and a lyricist. And now I find my... I wrote a song last night, Debbie. I'm so excited. I took this crazy um, moment house party in london maybe 15 years ago with a bunch of friends dancing and this thing that came out of my mouth to a great friend of mine on the dance floor and i always remember this phrase well it presented itself at two o'clock this morning with a song written synthesizer in 2018 pre-pandemic that has been sitting around in the studio and last night they came together and created this. What I'm going I'm to go in tonight and see if there's anything to it. But I woke up really excited uh, that insane phrase from 15 years ago, a London House Party, has found its way into a song written on a Moog in 2018. And uh, in 2021, boom, here it is. So we'll see. I, hopefully it'll wind up on what is, I, I'm certain to be, a, a solo record that's going to be coming out probably within the next year. Hopefully, yeah.
1: Hey, y'all, it's Elise. I have another podcast to tell you about. It's called In the Making. It's an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express. It'll probably inspire you no matter what you do. I know it certainly did for me. Search for In the Making in your podcast player. My thanks to In the Making and Adobe Express for
0: their support. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. You stated that it took you the better part of your 20s to recognize that insecurities are actually a superpower and something that you could utilize to allow your better work to come forward and realize that you didn't have to be snippy and cynical. And you've said that, quote, cold ass bitch was a coat I put on to protect myself. And I realized I can take that coat off now, which I love. (laughs) How did you come to that? get to that point where you could throw off that coat.
3: I mean, I can't believe that quote came out of my mouth, but it did. Um, anyone, <laughs> anyone who knows the band from earlier days, I would come on stage wearing four or five layers of clothing and usually a hat and maybe some glasses. And as I got heated up during the performance, I would take them off. And by the end of the performance, I was down to a T-shirt or you know, down to my jeans, no, no shirt at all. I always felt the need to protect myself and to layer myself from the world at large. I'm a very, I was born a very shy person. I'm not anymore because I had. The, but the part of that, Debbie, that I find interesting is that I was really moving on instinct. And instinct was telling me that the things that are embedded into me and in a part of who I am, a very the very part of my DNA, allows that insecurity, allows that vulnerability. Part of it being queer, part of it being you know, bullied, if you will, as a a child. Part of it being from a a family that had this nomadic, peripatetic, crazy pick up and move every couple of years and having to really be fiercely independent or uh, independent within a very tight family unit of two sisters and a mother and father. All of this created, I guess, an instinct that allowed me to... And without having the language to describe it to myself... Uh, allowed me to use that insecurity and that vulnerability to create the persona that became who I am, and that gets into a whole other philosophical or, or deeply um, psychological ar- arena that we don 't need to go into we create we, 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 we become who we want to become and then we, we we create who we want to become and then we become them uh, but I didn 't have the language to recognize that until much much later uh, when when i had Established myself enough that it didn't knock me backwards or throw me off my game. It simply allowed me to look at the earlier work and not disregard it so, um, so easily. And to, to acknowledge, wow, stuff that was incredibly ballsy and incredibly courageous. I just didn't see it as such. And I still don't think of myself. I still have, what is it? Um, imposter syndrome. Mm. You know, I, I, I always think that the next song, uh, or the next uh, photo book is going to be the, is that I'm a big fake, um, and that in its own regard can be a great power, a superpower. I'm a little bit quoting Greta Thunberg, who referred to when she became a public figure through her uh, through her activism and mocked by the world's media. How embarrassing are we as Americans? But being mocked for her voice, acknowledged. Publicly, that her being on the spectrum, being autistic, was what she regarded as a superpower. And I I was like, whoa, hang on a second. Here's a teenager. This thing that we've thought of my whole life as something that's a disability, she regards as a superpower. I have those superpowers within my vulnerability and my insecurities. And I've actually employed those throughout my entire adult life and presented. As a public figure, as a pop star, uh, as a singer-songwriter, as an artist, as a photographer, etc. And wow, what a thank you, Greta Thunberg, for allowing me to see myself a little more clearly. I, I'm sometimes embarrassed to start every sentence with the word I. I, I feel a little navel gazy, but but part of being a pop star allows you to not only acknowledge that the ego that it takes to get up on a stage and think that what you have to say or sing is valuable to someone beyond yourself also comes hand in hand with the humility of stepping back and and recognizing that if you start to believe your own myth, you're screwed and the work that you do is vastly unimportant. Really, really human. And that humanity, I think I'm just, this sounds insane to me coming out of my mouth, but that humanity, uh, that humility Combined with that ego is what I think that that friction uh, can create beautiful work in people that performance artists and, and dancers, uh, or in something as rigid as opera or ballet, uh, or in something as as freeform as my idea theoretically of what punk rock means. You know?
0: Yeah, it's interesting in spending time researching. A lot of the things that you were a part of and and talked about and wrote about through the 80s till now, I was very aware of your awareness of the sort of tides as they go back and forth between acceptance and reverence and um, people then getting upset about the very things that they used to be excited about and how you have to temper how you consider... To them by what you mean, sort of internally, and, and hold on to that in some way.
3: Wow, can you expand that on that? that makes sense. No, can you expand on that a little <laughs> bit more? I'm, I'm really intrigued.
0: Well, you, I, I remember you were talking about that you released not being as popular as some of the bigger, more sort of stadium albums. And, you know, I have stacks and stacks of, of your work. And thank you. They
2: have
0: the work appealed to a certain type of people the the later state more stadium work I'm talking about, you know, losing my religion and sort of the 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 world of of that super duper heavy, popular music that people, you know, all the out of time time that might be smaller or less appreciated by the masses. you know, it's still work that has meaning. And if you start to, and I, you know, talk to Roxanne about this all the time. um, If you start to measure your value and worth by the amount or the amount of albums that are sold or the amount of downloads or the amount of streams, you, you put your whole life in control of something that isn't you.
3: You're also competing uh, and I can't possibly compete with my past. And I have no desire to, nor with um, whoever the pop stars of, of, of 2021 or 2022, I have no even try to compete with that. I read an article, I, I think it was in The Guardian, about Damon Albarn from the band Blur. Uh, mm-hmm. He's someone who I deeply admire. And th- the point that they were making is the writer was saying, here's someone who had huge success and then didn't, which is, didn't try to continue having this success upon success upon success on a mass scale. But spent the next twenty years doing exactly what he wanted to do, experimenting with different types of music and musicians and different ways of presenting uh, uh, performance together through stage and theater and what have you. He's someone who I deeply admire. One, but it also I I was like, oh wow, I wish I had done that the way he did that. I'm now. So it's a day later. I'm thinking about what I have done and. Uh, you know, I think I've presented some pretty interesting things in the past decade, certainly since the band disbanded. It's not at all I'm looking at the span of my life and I'm looking at time remaining and I want to do a whole lot more. I actually thought about this yesterday as well. At my age, I'm 60, and I look great. But at 61, most people are thinking about retiring. And as an artist, as as a, I, I can't retire. I, the, 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 even the thought of that is ridiculous. I, I, I look at... Um, my heroes, whether, whether it's uh, Leonard Cohen, Patty Smith, um, Edmund White, people that continue working until, until the end of their lives, not because they want to, not because they're having to pay the bills, not because they have some fragile ego that has to be supported by this desire to be appreciated from outside. No, it's because you have to, not a choice.
0: Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I just turned 60 and feel, while well, I do feel time in a way that I Really have before. I mean, it's been escalating since I turned 50. So, but I also am more urgent in thinking, you know, if not now, when? And it reminds me of so when I, I interviewed David Lee Roth two years ago when we were talking about 1984 and how it felt to be, you know, at that moment in time, like the most popular dude on the planet, you know, the biggest album, the biggest tour, the biggest. Music video, everything that there was, and like his, hair. his surprise. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and and I, 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 he, I asked him what it felt like, and he paused, and he was extremely thoughtful, and he said, "You have to be really careful when you get to the top of the tallest mountain, because it's always cold. You're usually alone, and there's only one direction." And I. Comforted by the idea that you can sort of slowly walk up the mountain and maybe, if you're lucky, not peak until the day before you die.
3: Wow. that's I wouldn't have expected that from David Lee Roth. That's incredible.
0: I know. I love that he said that. It it really was extraordinary. Things that I do want to talk to you about a couple of, of your early pieces only because they mean so much to me and sort of the formation of who I am. So I'm going to be really selfish and okay. just want to ask you about a couple of songs because... Had I thought at the time that, you know, 30 years I to you about these songs, I would have, you know, just said, Debbie, you never have to worry about anything again because everything's going to just be fine. Um, <laughs> I want to talk to you about Harbor Coat. Harbor Coat is one of my favorite songs. Uh-huh. Like if somebody said, Debbie, write down top 10 songs of your life, it would be Harbor Coat. And... Not only is it one of my favorite songs of all time, but there's a line in it that I use sort of to describe a moment in time. At first, you know, when, when the album first came out, I'm talking about the album Murmur. What's on and Murmur. Yeah, is, I'm sorry, uh, Reckoning. 19, Reckoning. Uh, Reckoning. I'm going to say in that again.
3: 1984. Yeah. Right. right. Reckoning came out. I,
0: okay.
3: Yep. Yeah. And I have it. I have it, on,
0: yeah, I have it on. Yep. I have it the CD. That's how much I love this. And I also have all the the sort of digital versions of it because it's just easier to listen to music that way. But I would never ever give these up. So these are all the first pressings. And you didn't include the lyrics at the time. You had a real and people would argue. What does this mean? What does that mean? What is he saying here? What is he saying there? And I want to talk to you about that in a second. But I want to ask you about this line. I spent my whole life waiting to ask you this. There's a splinter in your eye. And it
3: reads. If you're asking me, I have yes. no idea. I think it's that instinct that we were talking about. I yeah. I, was, I was using, I, I was a fan of, of William Burroughs and Brian Geison. And I, I was very familiar with the cut-up technique that they had employed through their own work. And um, through the bands that were uh, coming up with R.E.M. through the Athens-Georgia scene, Specifically, Pylon and the B 52s, the idea of taking these random thoughts and ideas and throwing them together in a kind of Brian Geisen, William Burroughs mashup was kind of common. And so, what what does that mean? I mean, I I was 24. I was already kind of a pop star. The band had already gotten uh, named the record of the Thriller with our first album, which sold forty thousand copies at the time. Yeah. that was was that yeah. the Village Voice or
0: New York Times? New York Times rated it the number one album of the year
3: over Michael Jackson's Thriller. And we, I, I, I mean, we were living at the time, uh, a lot of the time, on Forty Fourth Street uh, at the Iroquois Hotel. It's where James Dean lived when he was studying acting in New York. Uh, we were in his room. We were told, <laughs> and Samo used to go into the. He would tag the um, was the slowest elevator in New York City, oh my God. but Samuel was, of course, uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat. Basquiat, and I mean, it was just this moment. You know, there was all this stuff was happening around us, but I would pick phrases out of the air and just throw them into the songs and, and not think twice about it. From I have no idea, Debbie, but it sure does sound good, and it means something to me. Most certainly. That's the line in the song. Actually, you're at the peak of the mountain right now. You pick the very best line in that song to, to focus on. Maybe we'll get tattoos together at some point. With my own lyric on my body would be a little creepy. So I'd, I'd, I'd get a tramp stamp across the back so I'd never have to do it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I, and now I use it. I use it as a way to explain what it means. Your nose, despite your face, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> which is so much more poetic. Exactly. So, my so my last question about that particular song, and then I'll leave you alone about it. Just, just you know, as I said, it, it was, it's been, it's my life playlist. Um, what is a Harbour code?
3: Well, to me, that actually that line for me is about like everything seems to be niggling. There's something that's irritating. There's something that's not quite on. And what is that? What you need to investigate. You need to step back. You need to look again and figure out. What doesn't feel exactly right? And that's when you have to change things slightly, maybe just incrementally. But um, a harbor coat, n- no idea. I mean, again, I was walking on stage in probably four or five layers of clothing. And after the first song, the, the coat would come off, usually an overcoat, actually, and then a shirt, and then a jacket, and then a shirt, and then another shirt, and then I'd be down to a T-shirt at the time. Later, when I realized that sex sells, I would strip down to my bare body and um, sometimes <laughs> shave my chest because it looked better from a distance, you know, depending on how big the I was a skinny little thing back then. And, um, yeah, I mean, I was wearing the coat. I was literally in, in embodying my own lyric. Uh, I was protecting myself
0: about the early albums you know they are pop albums and and one could also call them rock albums but you have a lot of love songs perfect circle talk about the passion there's so many love songs that are almost horses on these pop albums um
3: I, I i i intentionally did not write love songs i don't think i used i don't think i used the word love in a song until Our seventh or eighth album maybe i mean it was it was way 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 oh
0: but perfect circle is one of the great love songs of time really
3: thank you it's such a sad song to me i know but that's what i love about it
0: why were you so opposed to having the lyrics on the um sleeves
3: i sang using my voice as an instrument and again that's something i picked up from vanessa briscoe from pylon i think talked about her voice as an instrument i again very quite literally and naively, I said, "Oh, okay, my voice is an instrument too. So that's how I'll use it." The early, you know, the early stuff, murmur particularly. It's it's like um, Sigur Ross or This Mortal Coil, um, Elizabeth Frazier, people that Cockto Twins are creating languages or or just singing nonsense without narrative. The, the narrative is within the emotion and the feeling of the voice. So I was doing that without even knowing what I was doing. I was just throwing words out that you know they didn't have to make sense. It didn't. It, it had it had my, my spirit and my soul and my energy and my, my charisma, whatever was there at, at the age of 22, all wrapped up in it, and, and that was enough. But it was around the time of reckoning the second album and certainly by the third album that I realized I couldn't do this forever. The stuff that worked live for me wasn't particularly working uh, on record. I needed to uh, sharpen my storytelling, and I needed to start writing about something. At that same time, we were... Starting to travel the world, I mean, politicized by again the Reagan era U.S. intervention in Central America, uh, cruise missiles in Europe. We were representative of America wherever we went, and people were like, "What the fuck are you doing? What are you allowing your your government?" And we're like, "Excuse me, what?" So we became quite activist and and politicized uh, simply by traveling the world and seeing. Who we were and, and what we represented from, from a distance and through other people's eyes. Um, the first album pretend, uh, and that was on um, Green," which was our fifth, sixth album, sixth album, I think, and it was nine years after the band started. So I, I didn't feel secure in my, my abilities as a lyricist. They, they, you know what happened? I read the lyrics of a band that I really admired as a young man. Uh, before I heard the song, and the lyrics were not very good, and it completely changed how I listened to the song and stole the magic of music and the magic of a, of a human emotional voice away from me as a listener and as a fan. And so I think I was, I, I'm putting this together as we speak, Debbie. I'm not kidding. I don't think about this stuff. I haven't heard Harbor Coat since I was 27 years old, but I.
0: Sorry. And that's sorry.
3: okay. No, I'm going to go listen to it after we're done talking. I, I'm interested to hear. There's also a song called Nine to Nine on one of those records. Yes. I want to, <laughs> I want to hear that too. I have no idea what it's about. But anyway, I, World Leader Pretend was the first song. And I, I, I lifted that basically from uh, it's it's using uh, uh, military terminology to describe very, very profound, deep uh, and, and, and upsetting emotions. And the, the guy in the in the song is really eating himself alive. And and questioning his positions into himself. And, but, I, but I thought that that was a really, for me, a watermark moment. And so I, I allowed that lyric to be in the packaging of the album. That was 1989. It wasn't until Losing My Religion, which was 1991, allowed lip syncing in a video because it seemed fake to me. And it wasn't until after, I think, Bill Berry left the group in 1996 that I started including all the lyrics just because I was like, okay, I've done that. I'm a really good lyricist now. When I'm good, I'm great. When I'm bad, I'm not mediocre. So that's okay. That's something to be proud of. And I included all the lyrics, for better or worse.
0: I want to talk to you about your current work. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to ask you one question about the, the older work. And, and that really has to do with a competition that I read that you had with Kurt Cobain to see who could write a song with the most
3: yeah, yeah, yes. So
0: Kurt and I didn't
3: have a literal competition with each other. I said to myself, I'm "A song with more yes in it than any Nirvana song ever written." And it was only after the song was written that I said, "Hey Kurt, guess what I've done?" <laughs> and we uh-huh. we had a laugh about it, I think. But but that song was written in Seattle on a Walkman, walking around the block of the store. And you know, Peter Buck had moved there, uh, bought a house, um, started a family and Kurt and Courtney bought the house next door. They literally shared a, a fence. It was, it was an incredible moment for us as a band to find uh, these people that were, you know, uh, but really our contemporaries and, and moving into their ascendance with a, a similar attempt at grace and style that we had carried the whole time that we were doing what we were doing as a band. Well, in
0: 2011, after... Countless awards, becoming one of the world's most successful and respected bands of all time, selling over 85 million albums. More, 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 more okay. it's
2: always more, the, always, always
0: more so the American Absolutely. American. A, 185 trillion. <laughs> I always think
3: over 100 million, that's, that's what I say. Over 100, 100 million. million,
0: yeah, because when you see these things, you know, in, in on wherever, it's always like that moment, mm-hmm. that time thing, it's like that moment.
3: I'm, I'm actually teasing, it's, it's fine.
0: Oh, I we sold I a, lot of, a now, lot of records.
3: A lot of records. In in 2011, we disbanded. We we
0: without any acrimony, without anger. Um, you still make and record music, but you things now. And you have a number of really beautiful books that I want to talk to you about. Mm. Um, in 2018, along with Jonathan Berger, you published Michael Stipe, Volume One, uh, which is a collection of 35 photographs combining. In- with images of people like Kurt Cobain and Patti Smith as well as pho- photos that you've also collected of people like Marilyn Monroe, James Dean, Roy Cohn and and lots of others and you've said that photography is your primary diary um, and is it true you have over 50,000 photos in your collection?
3: There's a lot more and if I turn the camera, we're speaking on Zoom for your podcasters, uh, we can see each other but I can turn just slightly. Do you see that mountain right there? Yes. Those that's about 50,000 negatives. And that's, Wow. so I have three studios, this one, uh, that's stuff that we've actually gone through and, and digitized. So those are secure in more than one uh, medium now, but 50,000 doesn't begin to touch it. I use photography as uh, of remembering where I was and, and who I was with and, and as, as a way of sparking my memory, Patty Smith writes everything down. I just don't write things down. I'm not very good at that. I never have been. I'm really good with taking a picture. And that will, that will memories down to what was the meal? What were we eating? Who was sat at the end of the table who I maybe didn't talk to, but they were still present. They were still there uh, in this incredible moment. I've had this extraordinary life surrounded by and meeting incredible, incredible, and I've traveled the world, I've seen so many things, I've been in so many places that, that people dream of, and even talking about it, I'm in shock that that's my life. That's something that I am able to participate in. It's so thrilling and so exciting. It's a way for me to remember that, and a way to kind of reflect back and have a diary, keep a journal. That's my journal.
0: I believe one of your first cameras was one your father had gotten you from-
3: He bought it in Korea and um, uh, FM2. It was stolen uh, when I was 21 years old, uh, along with a a lot of weed and a jar full of pennies. Uh, But his insurance uh, covered it. And uh, he got another FM2, which I have to this day. Yeah, I used it when I was 14 years old. That was to me. And I started taking pictures as a 14 year old. It wasn't until I was 15 that I discovered music. So photography is really my first love in terms of mediums in that first book that you mentioned volume one uh jonathan berger went through about five thousand five fifty thousand of the images that i had on my computer and he picked the 35 or 34 images that he thought represented me as a visual artist in a way of presenting me not as a pop star with a with a hobby but as someone who's been actually doing to a larger audience and 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 I, I, I'm very grateful to him for the experience of putting that book together and actually having to take a step back and look at myself and my life through someone else's eyes. It was really exciting to see the choices that he made.
0: One of the things that I think is so interesting about your books is that they, they work on a whole slew of different levels. They're books of photography. So obviously they include photos Work on their own, on a wall somewhere. But then they're also talking to each other. They're communicating throughout. There is, in, in all of your books, a very specific linear narrative that changes at one individual piece on a wall to communicating in multiple ways just by the virtue of the way that they're ordered and the way they show up and the size of the photo in the book. Mm. How involved are you in the and the design of
3: these books. M., um, we always thought that the first song on a record is really, a really important way of, of introducing someone into a world of here's, here's a universe that you may not have uh, explored before. And here's, here's our version of, of, of a different type of reality. The song is really important. That's the first notes I employed that recently on the velvet underground cover version that I did of Sunday morning uh, for Todd Haynes' documentary about the Velvet Underground, uh, I did it with Hal Wilner, um, my dear friend who who died recently. Uh, but uh, and it was the last thing that Hal and I did together. But um, but I wanted, knowing that it was going to be the first song on the album, uh, I wanted to introduce the album in a way that would acknowledge that there's no way that anyone can ever copy or make of the Velvet Underground's first album, but we can present variations on what those songs mean to different types of artists and musicians. And so I opened it with this long, keening held clarinet note that for me, Gershwin uh, from George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, but I presented that to the musician and said, this is what I want. I want it to hold for way too long. And then we'll bring the song in underneath it and allow that to be the introduction to the album. With the books, I'm doing the same thing. beginning of each book, there is something that, in, in the second book, it's, you're literally the first image is, is a window that's blackened, and it's it's inviting you into this unknown place. That book is quite, I think, accomplished. Uh, the first book is a book. the third book with Tilda Swinton on the cover is my pandemic uh, book, and it is a little bit like me uh, in third grade not being able to read the clock quite right. It's it's a little stunted. It, it started as some. People Height in terms of the idea that I had for what the book was going to be, and it became something very different under the madness that became my COVID year of 2020. Uh, I went a little bit cuckoo, like I think a bunch of us did, and that is. what uh, But you, you need you need a, a a little bit of a a legend to get through it. Now, now the book does come with a, a QR code uh, with me describing, um, uh, in, uh, audio describing. Well, yeah, it's
0: a little podcast. If you little... scan the QR codes, you no, it's in a good way. If you scan so for our listeners, if you scan the QR codes on the various pages, they lead you to audio recordings of, of Michael talking about photographs and thinking about the narrative arc, the placement, which is super important. Um, it's a real sort of multi layered experience that I think is is really interesting for the format
3: it helps unravel the puzzle and it it, it, show, it shows yeah. my intention. My intention, as, no, I hate the word artist, but as an artist, my intention is always, always to not have anyone feel left out. I want every single person that encounters anything that I do to feel smart when they walk away from it, to feel like they get it. They understand it on some level, whether it's visual, hopefully, whether it's a deeper understanding of themselves or a deeper understanding of something that's outside of what they might expect from a former pop star. You know, I want everyone to feel smarter when they come away from this. Even if they just go, wow, that's a really, isn't she a magnificent creature? Well, yes, she is. She also represents a ton of stuff uh, that this book explores. And that's why she's on the cover. But anyway, I want everyone to step away feeling smarter. You know, that's um, one of my great heroes is Dolly Parton, describing uh, her intention behind her work Uh, the same way. Everyone should feel lifted by and and a part of what the piece is.
0: The books, though, is that they, while they are really inclusive, I don't think that they would exclude anybody. They have different ways in. So in in terms of your brand new book, that to me feels more like a play, a play with different through it, there are very distinct emotions that you experience, whether you're looking at ceramics, whether you're looking at photographs. I think there's something kind of almost installation-y about it, whereas our interference times feels much, much more abstract. It feels like you're diving into an experience, and a lot of the photographs feel like they're surrounding you, whereas in still
3: life,
0: going into something, if that makes any sense.
3: I really nailed it. I'm, I'm really, I'm, my, my jaw, my, my mouth is hanging open. I, I can't believe that you just said what you said about the, the new book, because all the work that I'm doing right now is actually from, if you can, if you can picture two things, um, Uncle Vanya, the film Birdman. So mm. a lot of it is coming from a proscenium stage, using language of the theater and conceptually using all these ideas of being either an actor or someone on the side who's watching a a significant and important part of the production, but not in the public eye. So I'm using all these and God knows there's tropes and there's, there's layer upon layer upon layer of stuff around that. But that's what I'm using, not only in this book, but in all the work that I'm doing right now in the studio held it on the head with no provocation at all. I'm super, oh, good. that's super exciting to me, Debbie. Uh,
0: Thank you. I, well, I'm really loving the work. And I, I think I think especially Portrait Still Life feels like it needs to be explored materially, if that makes sense, like sort of in a location.
3: Thank you. It will be um, uh, in Milan, fall of twenty two. Um, at the ICA Milano, the institution. Um, They're doing uh, my first uh, giant uh, exhibition of my work, and it's going to focus on these three books, the vases that are in the book, uh, which are real vases uh, that were photographed, um, made by uh, the ceramicist Caroline Walnut. The books, which are real books, but in that language that we were just speaking of, of the theater, they're photographed to look like a digital image of a book rather than a real book itself. And so what you're looking at is a real image that looks like a fake image. Closely, you just get a little shadow here and there. And you realize that the the background of the books, the edges of the books are not exactly the same from one picture to the other. They are real. And so they're going to be a part of it. Some of them represent um, people who are no longer with us on uh, the ghost images, the ghost books. And some of them represent people that that are with us. Uh, But it's all people who, for one reason or another, last year, in trying to put together a book of portraits of people who I found to be immensely courageous and and using that vulnerability to allow a humanity into their work or into the way that they presented themselves as public figures or as people in my lives or as people that are not public figures but were pushed into the public sphere through some one incident or another having a huge amount to do with it. All those people found their way into my consciousness in pandemic 2020 and therefore into this book. It's a little bit of my shout out song. Uh, my best friend called it that, the James Brown shout out song to 2020 who, who caught my eye and, 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 and touched my heart.
0: Well, it's a beautiful book. I think you also rekindled an interest that you had in fonts, fonts yourself.
3: For the books, the things that um, uh, the the one thing on earth that horrifies me more than anything is injustice. When I when I see injustice, I become I see red. I just become furious. The second thing after injustice that bugs me makes me crazy is bad design.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Let's just talk quickly. I just I just want to ask you about the fonts because you did design the fonts, right?
3: Well, I pulled them from the 1970s. Or is is that's the era that I was a teenager and all these things right. like, all these important things like discovering my own sexuality, deciding myself, um, discovering punk rock, and and the idea of, be, of being a pop star and being a public figure, embracing that. Uh, all the fonts that were happening in the 70s, that's my sweet spot. And so had I not found music or photography, I think I would have been a very graphic artist uh, or graphic designer. And, and so I explored that in this book. Uh, under lockdown, I pulled... That reminded me of the 1970s and spoke to me as such. And then uh, I used them in books that, again, either computer-generated images of books, or they look like really trashy collages, uh, which was, of course, intentional. But I cut and pasted my version of these heroic and vulnerable people into photographed them for my book.
0: Michael. It has been an absolute honor talking with you today. Thank you so much for joining me on Design Matters. Thank you. That was awesome. His latest book is an untitled book of portraits and still lives. You can find out more about him and see a lot more of his work on michaelstipe.com. This is the 17th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. We can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
2: Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts Master's and Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The Editor-in-Chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Weiland.